This week we have a follow-up to last week's interview with Sana Mustafa. When I interviewed Sana back in November 2021, we could not have imagined the Ukrainian refugee crisis. So I wanted to hear Sana's perspective as Director of Partnership and Engagement at Asylum Access on the mass migration from Ukraine that's resulted from the Russian invasion and to understand the broader implications on how the world should deal with this forced displacement and with future mass migrations as climate change really forces people north and south. This is a shorter than normal episode, but Sana's insight and experience makes this well worth a listen. Now, on with the show. Sana, it's great to have you back for a short recap on the Impossible Network. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, but although your episode just went out <laughs> recently, it's been a while since we actually <laughs> recorded it. But, but as I said, because of my accident, I delayed it. But in the intervening okay. time, lots happened in the world. Uh, obviously, the, the, the most notably, the invasion of Ukraine and the massive influx of refugees across Europe. And also, um, aside from that, uh, there are other things have been happening in the world. And I'm sure you, uh, in your role at Asylum Access, uh, there have been things happening on your side as well. So I think what I'd want to do is get you back on just really to give us an update as to where you are and to get your perspective on how the world deals with beyond what was happening in 2015, 16, with migrants coming into Europe uh, from Afghanistan, Syria, Middle East, Africa, but now it's coming from Eastern Europe. How does the West, I suppose, rethink and integrate refugees in a way that will lead for a more harmonious society and and just, I suppose, generally integrate people into society so that, that these people can live respectful and humane lives if they decide to stay there. Who knows what's going to happen post the war? Because um, I know that you're from your perspective when we spoke it you don't use the word refugees you use the word displaced people well the displaced need to become find homes so how do we deal with it and let's not yet i'm not even talking about the the food crisis that's probably on the horizon as well yeah thank you mark for all these questions you know i think forced displacement in general like has always been framed as a crisis and i think the reason is that because a lot of the nation states and the world just um refuses to deal with it in a, on a long-term vision and just wants to always, like every few years when the war erupts or any reason that causes forced displacement for, you know, a big number of population, then we get surprised and we get overwhelmed and we don't know what to do and xenophobia kicks in. So yes, it becomes a crisis. Mm-hmm. So I see, I, I think the, the foundation of framing it as a crisis has to do not with the event itself, actually has to do with the way we react to the event. We make it a crisis. Um, and I, and I, it's fascinating for me, you know, as like a young person relatively that, you know, for decades, the system has been dealing with it the same way. And still, you know, we're talking about leaders in nation states and that have not really thought about how we can do this differently. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think Afghanistan recently, um, and, and Ukraine. Where very recent, I mean, Syria continues to be obviously, and, and even Venezuelan refugees, but, you know, these, I think, very important examples to look at because they kind of happen at the same time, like with a very, you know, little difference. And 
the reaction has been extremely different. Um, and, um, and I think Ukraine especially reflects that, that the response to Ukrainian refugees, I, it should be the response to all refugees. Mm-hmm. So you, you've seen a, a, a significant difference in the way that. Yes. I mean, absolutely. I think we all, um, I can mention examples, but I feel this is the most striking thing that has happened that we all, whether refugees or non-refugees were surprised by the, mm-hmm. by the reaction of the global community and Europe and, and Western countries to Ukrainian refugees being very open, very welcoming. Very receptive, mm-hmm. very, um, you not calling it a crisis. And, um, and for us as re- for me, myself, as a person of forced displacement, as an activist, as a woman of color and as a human of this world, you know, I have two, two feelings about it. The first one, celebra- celebratory feeling of like, this is amazing. This is how it should be for mm-hmm. everyone. But at the same time, I feel the obligation from my own personal experience and from the justice lens to call out the bias, the structural bias in this response yeah. and the structural bias and, and, and xenophobia and the whole and the kind of overall system response in general for forced displacement. Because if we, you know, when we talk about structural racism and bias being root, being really the roots of our sector, the forced displacement sector, everyone doesn't want to talk about this and like even would argue against this. But this is really the most recent perfect manifestation of that. Yes, our system is biased. Your responses to mm-hmm. your response to forced displacement and refugees and migrants was a racist response for decades. And there, and even right now mm-hmm. within the Ukrainian in, people displaced from Ukraine, we know very well, and there's so many documented cases of discrimination against those who are not white with blue eyes, you know, not like you don't have Ukrainian like documents versus, you know, those who are people mm-hmm. of color, black. You mean like, like students exactly. that were studying in different exactly. cities that were maybe come from the Middle East exactly. or Africa. So I think I, yeah. what I feel here is that I want, we need the system to acknowledge that we need all of us to acknowledge this bias and this t- discrimination within the system. And then we need to, Mm-hmm. I also acknowledge how amazing this response, this mobi- global mobilization on policy and resources level to welcome and, and actually reduce the trauma of the people we're, we're welcoming into, into our countries and take this model and be like, this is how it should be with everyone. Why is it not? So who do you, um, as an activist, um, actively working to change the narrative and change perceptions who are you engaging with around this which organizations international organizations which countries you know how do you how do you sort of create that how do you use this as you say in there's a positive because people have been welcomed they haven't been using the term crisis how do you use this as a pivot point to realign the way other displaced peoples are viewed and welcomed? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's it could be used in multiple ways. The first way is that for a lot of the policymakers and governments when where they say we don't have the capacity, we don't have the resources, and we don't have the systems that could take those people, mm-hmm. there's a very good case study. No, you do have it. When you have the political will, you actually do have it. Mm-hmm. And similarly, even um, my colleagues published an article about 
using the Ukraine case about um, the Mexico border and the U.S., because the U.S. made the claim border is that they can't welcome Mexicans and refugee, uh, you know, refugees or migrants coming through Mexico to the U.S. because they don't have the capacity and the resources. And now they created a whole separate system to really make sure that Ukrainian and Russian refugees or those who want to seek asylum are welcome. They have a channel to come to the U.S. through Mexico. I saw that. That that was a real surprise yes. that a lot of Ukrainians are turning up on the yes. on the American and southern border, which Great, is incredible. But that means you actually mm. can do it. You actually have the systems. Yeah. You actually have the resources. Yeah. You just, you Somewhat calling bullshit on the on the um, exactly. On the you just don't have the political will. And similarly nice, in Europe, yeah. and similar mm. with other, even Canada, like and 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 the US offering you know certain visas for Ukrainians to come with big numbers, and Europe as well facilitating access to Ukrainian refugees to 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 come and really with dignity to that to an extent. Um, that's all in evidence that actually can be done. So we can't continue to blame the systems and the lack of resources mm-hmm. on our lack of action and political will. Um, the second thing is that. It's really kind of the argument of at this time and age, how are we looking forward as leaders? Like first displacement will continue to increase, whether for, you know, violence, wars or climate change. And this is just a fact. And as the leaders of your countries, if you don't have, you know, you foresee a solution and a way that you actually do to not make this a crisis, then then we are missing an opportunity here. Um to really prepare our countries and our policies to welcome ref- come people from all around the world. And I think with the increase of yeah. nationalism as, as well and right wing, you, you might, you are preparing your country for a civil war, you're preparing your country for unrest. If you do not foresee this, if you do not prepare your people for a mindset sh- shift, if you do not work on racism within your own countries, if you do not prepare the systems as well to welcome those people and integrate them because to be honest it's just not a matter of you want to do this or not it's happening anyway so how do you want it to be happen mm-hmm. and how how much you want this to come from leadership uh position versus um unprecedented and as a result leading to a further crisis and increasing xenophobia in the country and eventually leading to unrest of any sort of type it's interesting it made me Reflect. I can't remember if we talked about it in the in the first interview, but I went to the Tenement Museum in New York before I left, and and was in the. Um, it's a great um, museum for people that go into New York to see how people lived um, on. Um, is it Delancey? Uh, I think it is. Um, and they've retained the original apartments where people lived and when they come in as um, immigrants into New York in the late 1800s. And it's fascinating to see that. And it just made me reflect on how welcoming and how much opportunity there was from people coming from, whether it be Ireland, Eastern Europe, combination of sort of, sort of you know, all races, religions, just wash in New York and and building their communities, whether it be the Russians and uh, Brighton Beach, um, and obviously other Eastern Europe and Poles um, in the Lower East Side, and Italians and the Chinese, and then the, and, the, and it's incredible that the the country was so open and welcoming, and there was no barriers, and it was a time of opportunity where people's 
um, endeavor, hard work, sacrifice, and willingness to endure hardship to build a better life was what accelerated the progress of the U.S. Um, economy, particularly in New York. And now there's this huge opportunity available to countries to seize this as a an economic, not just from a sort of what is a, from a human rights and from a decency standpoint and from a pure humanity, but from a, a self, if you look at it from a self-interest standpoint, countries have an opportunity to embrace talent, encourage these people to create new homes and new opportunity and to change the sort of the nature of and the direction of those, those economies. And I, and I just think it's crazy that what we're seeing is polarization um, creating barriers to the embrace of, of, of displaced peoples. It's bizarre. Are there any groups or, nar- or is there a narrative or any uh, organizations that are um, fighting for that type of policy to see it as an opportunity rather than as a, a crisis? To be honest, all organizations around me, every, all organizations, most of organizations, I would say, in the sector right now, um, who fight for asylum, who fight for refugee rights, are making the case um, around this, mm-hmm. y- utilizing this policy moment of like, it could be done because you just did it. Uh, it could be done for others. And mm-hmm. so, so many are doing this, including even funders, actually, in front. Uh, a lot of activists, a lot of philanthropy, philanthropic um, actors and, and organizations. And I think it's good that we are mobilized on this and, and continuing mm-hmm. to use the moment I think what's really tricky is that, unfortunately, like all all big events, after a while, an event loses its momentum. Um, but I think, like for Asylum Access and similar organizations, um, you know, this is a historic reaction, right? And, and 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 it's been documented, and we will make sure to continue to use this as an advocacy tool going forward. Every time, you know, we, we are received with barriers and 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 excuses. Um, to not welcome refugees, whether at mm-hmm. the U.S. border, whether in Malaysia, whether in Thailand, or whether in Europe as well. Okay. And what's the latest from um, on the ground in the Middle East and, and particularly in Syria? Can you give us an update as to what the you know um, the situation in Syria. For so many people, they think it's over. It's been eleven years, and uh, the situation mm-hmm. is really still is just dec- uh, declining and declining and. As a Syrian myself, who's like in touch with my family very often, I was telling friends the other day, you know, every time it gets worse and, you know, you think it can't get worse and then it gets worse and, and, and people adapt. And this is, but this is not okay that people adapt. Like my family and other families are adapting into Russian presence all over our lives. I mean, we teach Russian language in schools right now. <laughs> this is colonization. Wow. Uh, in the modern age as that's well, incredible. and and that's what we continue to say. You know what's happened. What's happened in Ukraine in the past few months has been happening in Syria for at least eight years since recent Russian intervention, and it really, mm-hmm. really no one cared, and no one continued to care. Um, and I am it break my heart what I see in Ukraine because I know how worse it could get. We've got that. You know when Russia yeah. first intervened. It, it was certain level of destruction. But now, after eight years, we're talking about political takeover. We're talking about social takeover. We're talking about war crimes. 
more than what it's already been done. So I really fear for Ukraine if the world 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 leaders, quote quote leaders, mm-hmm. don't really act and um and stop Russia. And I'm afraid of like, yeah, Ukraine will be the next Syria. And in my you know political understanding and like political analysis is that obviously Syria was a testing ground for Putin of how much the West mm-hmm. will stop Russia from spreading its yeah. hegemony. And the West did nothing, nothing. And I think mm-hmm. maybe like they did not think forward about how this could lead to further, you know, invasions. And here we are facing Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as, as, a, as a civilian in many ways, I really wonder of like those in power, how, how do they not foresee those things? You know, as like, I am a civilian, have mm-hmm. been able to foresee. And we made this argument as Syrian activists for 10 years to the world world leaders in Geneva, in the US, in Europe, being like, if you don't, if you let Putin go away, you know, like run away with his crimes in, in Syria and even Iran and China, this is not going to be it. You're going to have, you know, it's going to come to your back door. Yeah. And really, no one really understood this or maybe did not have, again, the political will and there's, you know, geopolitics. So no one really took an action. And here we are again. And the same on force displacement. We've been I mean, it's a lie if someone, anyone tells you it's unprecedented. What's unprecedented about it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, we can already foresee 10 more forced displacement crises in the next few years. And we can tell you exactly where would they come from, you know, and climate action activists would tell you exactly where would they come from. And then world leaders would be like, we're surprised. <laughs> and so I think mm-hmm. there is something about not stopping delaying things and dealing with them later and like us coming together and actually strategizing and working together collectively as a world, as humans of this universe of how we are going to deal with these issues going forward. Because I, you know, as, as, as someone who's now living in the Asian time of, you know, climate change, I am worried for our continuity as a human, you know, Mm -hmm. as a human race. And, and I feel, you know, we cannot separate the political events from 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 climate change right um and so this connection mm-hmm. is very important and i think things needs to be done differently this time than it has been done for decades before a couple of other questions um in terms of syria and with i mean i'm shocked i'm surprised that they're they have such a stranglehold on the country that russian is being taught in schools does that mean that um it's mainly i mean obviously um, Arabic is the primary language, but instead of being English or French, it's it's, it's Russian. It's the second language now for children growing up. Yes, I mean, it, we continue to teach in schools English and uh, and French, which actually only been added like in the last fifteen years or something. So not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, Russia now is another language we teach it at school, which is very rare because we don't teach other languages usually. It's not like, you know, in the US system where you can choose a language you want to you want to study beside uh, you know as a your secondary language. Um and so and you know and I, there are so many signs in the street I mean there are so many signs is who decides in Geneva that first you can understand who's actually in power in Syria, which is Russia. Mm -hmm. If that's not an indicator, you can go to the country. And there's so many signs in the streets of like Russian and Syrian flags and and Putin and Assad pictures next to each other in offices, in government offices, Mm -hmm. in the streets, you know, um, economy. uh, There are so many new, you know, 
what do you, like buildings and like commercial buildings that are really built by Russia and, and China as well in Syria as mm-hmm. a sign of, you know, re- re- rebuilding the country. Um, and so, yes, there, the signs are not lacking and every, anyone who is little bit following Syria, it's very obvious. And especially those in power mm-hmm. from Geneva, they know exactly who they're talking to and who's making decisions. They don't talk to the Syrians, really. They talk to the Russians about Syria, to Iranians about Syria. Um, and mm-hmm. so um, I'm afraid, you know, I'm not afraid. I mean, I'm positive. If Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, mm-hmm. which, you know, we have a past, even between we have history between Ukraine and Russia. That's very evident of that as well. It will just be the same, if not worse. Okay. And you mentioned... Um, uh, displaced people and other um, likely hotspots around the world where there will be potential sort of movements of people because of climate change. Which parts of the world are you talking about? You know, um, it's it's funny. I think I think of Europe a lot, especially now, actually, in light of, mm. I think Ukraine and Europeans did not think like they would have refugees from Europe into Europe. Um, mm, and I think yeah. of, um, you know, in Canada and in the U.S., in, in the countries that we don't think of, obviously, like climate change, I think will ha- will affect a lot um, movement and migration. And obviously, the usual suspects of countries in the global majority um, and in the global south, as a result of mm. colonization, as a result of capitalism, as a result of they, how they have been used, um, you know, as really kind of laps for so much of the of the West. Um, industries, of course, will continue to face um, and would be the first probably to face the consequences of climate change. And it's going to be unjust again. The way we deal with it and the resources mm-hmm. are going to just reflect injustice in the world again of like who's going to step up to save those countries versus who's, who has resources and going to step up to save countries in the global north. Yeah, it's, it's a terrifying prospect. Yes. I mean, you just look at what was happening in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, over the weekend with far-right yeah. groups um, who, who were taking very violent action against what they see as the integration of um, um, Muslims into the country. Um, and if, you, if we think about just the, 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 the potential sort of migration of peoples in the next 20, 30 years, the risk of social unrest and and civil breakdown is, is, is terrifying. Absolutely. I think, you know, so, nationalism is the next disease yeah. if we don't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Well, you've certainly got your hands full um, in terms of uh, the task to, to reframe yeah. the narrative and the perceptions of people, um, both in government and in, in society generally. So um, if people want to read more, I think we put links in the show yeah. notes before, but if people want to read more or contribute to this um, yeah. this reframing and rethinking of how we think about refugees and displaced peoples, where should they go? Yes, I can, um, you know, you can go to asylumaccess.org. We have it. We have also um, unified number of resources on Ukraine action, especially towards um, supporting organizations that led by locals in Poland and in Ukraine, and also organizations that focus on more marginalized groups, just as such as people of color, LGBTQ women, amongst mm-hmm. that forcibly displaced from Ukraine. Um, and so, definitely, people could could look there. And and in general, I okay. I think as as public, all of us, you know, we have fatigue. I mean, we're all tired. Like COVID is still mm-hmm. kind of you know in and out and world crises have not stopped 
Um, I mean, ever since I, I was born myself, and especially in the last year, there, so much has been happening. And so it's easy for all of us to feel overwhelmed. Um, and I think it's okay. Um, I, I feel overwhelmed myself. So I, I, I'm, personally, I'm always trying to balance between really being aware of my fatigue and like taking care of myself, but also not detaching mm. myself from, or like not stopping to take action on, on what's happening in the world because, um, it is really personal for all of us. And no matter how distant you are from forced, forced displacement, um, it's, it's close. It's, I don't think anyone is distant mm -hmm. right now. We're all very close to it. Yeah. Even if we don't have immediately the lived experience, it's, you know, it's your neighbor, it's in your country and it's just increasing. Um, and so finding that balance between action and like, you know, self care, I, I think it's something I'm trying to navigate and I, Kind of would invite everyone to think about it um, as as a as a question to navigate versus like to not do anything at all. Okay, and then final question: and how are your family? Have you any news on your father? Are your mother and your sister are they likely to come to the US? Yeah, no, uh, no news on my father. My father um, continues to be forcibly disappeared um, without any news since July second, twenty thirteen. Um, so we are coming up to, um, nine years, um, anniversary in a few months. Mm -hmm. And, um, my mother and my sister, my younger continue to be in Canada waiting for their documents. Um, and my older, the same who's based in Germany. And unfortunately, you know, we have not seen each other in three years, um, due to COVID and due to lack of documents and herself, my older mm -hmm. sister, who's based in Berlin and every day fights for our dad's freedom has been declined visa by the Canadian government to come and see my mom and my sister and myself. Um, and, you know, it's like we are forbidden by the system from seeing our father and we are also forbidden by the external system uh, to also come together and reunite. Um, and so, you know, the system is really um, not built for people like us. Oh. Not built for people with no Western documentations, not built with for people who don't have traditional jobs and like, you know, they want like proof of incomes that qualifies for Western countries, mm -hmm. not built for people who are not, you know, white. Um, and white means like in privilege and access and resources. Um, and so we're trying to change those systems and we'll continue, you know, to, to advocate and to speak up. But I have to say it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. Well, um, it's impressive the um, your your will and your energy and your optimism. I try. So, um, <laughs> thank you. Thank, well, thank thank you again, Sana, and uh, it was great to catch up with you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network. <laughs>